<clears throat> this is uh, August 19th, 2020, and I've been reading lately about uh, plagues, pandemics of the past, and uh, it's been oddly reassuring uh, maybe just to know that uh, human beings have gone through this before and eventually recovered. Life went on, the world recovered. And uh, so I'm going to read from uh, some articles uh, today um, that I hope will lead listeners to the same conclusion, that uh, if we step back and, and, and take, get, get the big picture of this spread out over centuries, that it, uh, it can be somewhat reassuring. <clears throat> There's this a wonderful uh, statement in the Shurangama Sutra uh, attributed to the Buddha where uh, he said, uh, still, no, swiftly flowing water when viewed from afar appears still. And that's, that's what I hope some of you will f- We'll find after this that uh, that we can find uh, some kind of the eye of the hurricane in, in all of this. <clears throat> the first article uh, it's from the New York Times, July nineteenth. It's called "Mass Death Is Not Inevitable," and it's by a Donald McNeil Jr who's a science and health reporter for the Times. And uh, he talks about how now in this country we're still struggling uh, with the death toll and the the infection rate. And and he says, and yet we are still arguing over how to prevent this. Each state struggling over how much lockdown to impose and what its governor can make its citizens do. And then uh, he quotes an Emily Landon, a coronavirus expert at the University of Chicago Medical School, who said, You know the five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. And she says, I think the American people are are in all five of them, but different parts of the country are in different stages. I think that's a that's a that's a insightful comment. And then uh, McNeil says, as death stalks us, especially our elders, have we simply become inured to the idea that many of us are doomed? <clears throat> um, and then. There's an article that talks about the similarities, uh, the commonalities, looking back through history at how these pandemics run. Uh, the, the, the article is called What Plague Novels Tell Us. This is from the New York Times, April 26th of this year. It's an opinion piece by uh, an Orhan Pamuk. Um, who uh, 
He's just coming out with a, a, a novel called Knights of Plague. And he was the uh, recipient of the Nobel Prize in Literature. <coughs> uh, he's uh, Turkish, and this, this article was translated from Turkish. He talks about, in this article, Pamuk talks about uh, the questions he gets about how this pandemic is similar or different from previous ones. These come from friends and family members. He says, they are most curious about similarities between the current coronavirus pandemic and the historical outbreaks of plague and cholera. There is an overabundance of similarities. Throughout human and literary history, what makes pandemics alike is not mere commonality of germs and viruses, but that our initial responses were always the same. So listen up. The first response to the outbreak of a pandemic has always been denial. National and local governments have always been late to respond and have distorted facts and manipulated figures to deny the existence of the outbreak. He says, in the early stages of a journal of the plague year, the single most illuminating work of literature ever written on contagion and human behavior, Daniel Defoe reports that in 1664, local authorities in some neighborhoods of London tried to make the number of plague deaths appear lower than it was by registering other invented diseases as the recorded cause of death. I think we've seen some of that. There are reports, uh, I just saw last week, that the number of deaths may be far, far higher than officially recorded, like double the number, which now the number is running at 172,000 in this country. The... Uh, this uh, Pamuk continues in the 1827 novel The Betrothed, perhaps the most realistic novel ever written about an outbreak of plague, the Italian writer Alessandro Manzoni describes and supports the local population's anger at the official response to the 1630 plague in Milan. In spite of the evidence the governor of Milan ignores the threat posed by the disease and will not even cancel a local prince's birthday celebrations. Manzoni showed that the plague spread rapidly because the restrictions introduced were insufficient. Their enforcement was lax, and his fellow citizens didn't heed them. Hmm. Sound familiar? <clears throat> he continues, much of the literature of plague and contagious diseases presents the carelessness, incompetence, and selfishness of those in power as the sole instigator of the fury of the masses. That, uh, that fury in this country may yet come. He says, but the best writers, such as Defoe and Albert Camus, allowed their readers a glimpse at something other than politics lying beneath the wave of popular fury, something intrinsic to the human condition. 
Defoe's novel shows us that behind the endless remonstrances and boundless rage, there also lies an anger against fate, against a divine will that witnesses and perhaps even condones all this death and human suffering, and a rage against the institution of organized religion that seem unsure of how to deal with any of it. Well, you know, in uh, Buddhism, we don't have this problem. First of all, because we don't believe in fate. Uh, Karma has sometimes mistakenly been uh, translated as fate. But uh, karma is a a dynamic process that we're we're always uh, reforming our karma. So we're not stuck to fight against some blindly against fate. And we sure don't have to contend with uh, a divine will that's let us down. Uh, I don't know how people who believe in God uh, explain why he would allow all this to happen. He or she would allow all this to happen. But uh, it's there is no God concept in Buddhism or Zen. He continues, humanity's other universal and seemingly unprompted response to pandemics has always been to create rumors and spread false information. During past pandemics, rumors were mainly fueled by misinformation and the impossibility of seeing the fuller picture. Well, this latter explanation uh, is not so much a problem these days. We have these vast... um, technical technological resources at our disposal where we can get get a lot of the big picture uh, insofar as it applies to this pandemic what uh again what i'm trying to uh, convey here is a much bigger picture um, spanning centuries but about the rumors and spreading false information yeah do I even need to comment on that when we, those of us who see and hear and read about what's going on, especially in uh, by our administration? The next article is uh, from the New Yorker, July 20th, and the title is Crossroads. The uh, subtitle is A Scholar of the Plague Thinks That Pandemics Wreak Havoc and open minds. And this uh, this author, the scholar referred to, is a Lawrence Wright. Excuse me, it's not, he's the author of the article. It's his interviewing a scholar, a scholar by the, by the name of Gianna Pomata, uh, who is uh, with John Hopkins University, uh, She's a retired professor at the Institute of the History of Medicine. The author says, when we first talked on Skype, she immediately compared COVID-19 to the bubonic plague that struck Europe in the 14th century. Not in the number of dead, but in terms of shaking up the way people think. 
She went on. The Black Death really marks the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of something else. That something else, the author writes, that something else was the Renaissance. I asked Pomata to imagine, this is the author, to imagine walking out of her apartment 672 years ago during the Black Death. How would Bologna, she's from Italy, how would Bologna appear different? And she said, if you try to imagine a plague-stricken city in the Middle Ages, the first thing you'd see would be dead people on the streets. Just as we have to send the army to take coffins to crematories in other cities, as in Bergamo right now, in the Middle Ages they couldn't cope with so many dead. The bodies just piled up on the streets. Uh, there are descriptions here of this, the hideous outbreaks, the symptoms of the uh, of the Black Death, the the, uh, the bubonic plague, um, and a little bit of history. Before arriving in Italy, this was the mid-14th century, before arriving in Italy, the rampaging contagion had already killed millions of people as it burned through China, Russia, India, Persia, Syria, and Asia Minor. That's a lot of territory, those countries. It was said that there were entire territories where nobody was left alive. The source of the disease was sometimes thought to be miasma or air that was considered unhealthy, such as sea breezes. Huh. Oh, really? Sea breezes? Paradoxically, there was also a folk belief that attendants who cleaned latrines were immune, which led some people to confine themselves for hours a day amid human waste absorbing the presumed medicinal odors. The advice of doctors and the power of medicine appeared useless and unavailing, Boccaccio wrote. Some people maintained that the surest medicine for such an evil disease was to drink heavily, enjoy life's pleasures, and go about singing and having fun satisfying their appetites by any means available while laughing at everything. I don't know how many of you have seen the clips of young people at clubs and beaches and pools. I'm thinking of, uh, among others, the uh, that, that resort in the Ozarks from a few weeks ago. But you keep seeing them. They're, they're all over. College parties... Um, what has changed in 600 years? Others, he observed, formed themselves into companies and lived in isolation from everyone else. So, there it is. Different people responding in different ways. And then this uh, this 
scholar, this plague scholar, Potama, Pomata, excuse me, Pomata, she 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 told the author, "What happens after the black, af- what happens after the Black Death? It's like a wind, fresh air coming in, the fresh air of common sense, the intellectual overthrow of the scholastic medicine establishment in the Middle Ages." was caused by doctors who set aside the classical texts and gradually turned to empirical evidence. It was a revival of medical science, which had been dismissed after the fall of ancient Rome a thousand years earlier. After the Black Death, nothing was the same, Pomata said. What I expect now is something as dramatic is going to happen, not so much in medicine, but in the economy and culture. Because of danger, there's this wonderful human response, which is to think in a new way. That's what we can hope for, is that this, that someday, a hundred or two hundred Maybe 50 years from now, we can look back and see that this was a great turning of consciousness, realizing that we have to change. We have to change our policies, our politics. We have to change in all kinds of ways. And that the best way of that happening is through interchange, the changing of the mind is where meditation comes in. A little more history. Medieval mortality figures are a matter of speculation, but Bologna is believed to have lost half its population in 1348. Cities all over Europe were emptied. That first outbreak between 1347 and 1351 is estimated to have killed at least 75 million people worldwide and maybe as many as 200 million. I'm not reading this wanting to anyone to be frightened by it, uh, but r- hopefully to see that uh, as, as uh, cataclysmic as that was, um, when you take the long view, life goes on, and that was that was uh, the mid mid thirteen hundreds. Uh, that was some nine hundred years after Bodhidharma. <clears throat> and then this uh, this Italian woman, the scholar, she continues. Chroniclers of the plague describe the the crumbling of the family. At the same time, human beings are creative. They react to this perceived moral decay by creating new institutions. For instance, they create boards of health, which are in charge of quarantine. For the first time, hospitals split patients up into specific wards so that broken bones and wounds, say, were treated separately from diseases. There was also a rise in trade associations to take care of medical costs and funeral expenses. 
Komata then says, So you can see both trends. On the one hand, the plague works as a kind of acid. On the other hand, people try to recreate ties, and perhaps better ties. I'm back. Uh, I don't know if you if you heard the the break in the recording, but someone was knocking on my door, so I had to go take care of that. But to continue uh, with the this words of uh, Pomata, this this uh, scholar from Italy, she said the last plague pandemic began in the mid 19th century in China and spread to India, where it killed six million people. At the beginning of the 20th century, the disease journeyed to America, where a Chinese resident of San Francisco was the first to die of it. Now, this is the interesting part. Henry Gage, the governor of California at the time, tried to play down the outbreak, speculating that white people were immune to the disease. <laughs> Scores died. That's, uh, again, it's just... This year, same thing, repeating. Pomata described the pandemic as, these are her words, an accelerator of mental renewal. She explained, we listen more, perhaps. We're more ready to talk to one another. <clears throat> Here's more about the uh, the renewal, about the Renaissance after the uh, the uh, the Black Death. The Middle Ages didn't end definitively until the fall of Constantinople in 1453. So that's a hundred years after the bubonic plague when scholars of the Byzantine Empire migrated to Europe, especially to Italy, bringing their libraries with them. But new thinking was already underway, spurred partly by Petrarch's embrace of old thinking, which is why he is often cited as the instigating figure of the Renaissance. Uh, Petrarch is uh, uh, the Italian poet and scholar uh, in, uh, during the time of the bubonic plague. Artists reclaimed ancient techniques for drawing and painting with perspective. Musicians recovered melody. Humanism unsettled the stagnant rule of religion over people's minds. Michelangelo, da Vinci, Palladio, Brunelleschi, Boccaccio, Petrarch, Machiavelli, and Dante Alighieri became foundation stones of European thought. Italian explorers, including Christopher Columbus, Giovanni di Verrazzano, and Amerigo Vespucci, changed the map of the world. 
Galileo established the scientific method. The Italian Renaissance was perhaps the greatest efflorescence of science and art in Western civilization. There's hope. Remarkable, remarkable, remarkable things can come out of this. The author, Lawrence Wright, says, We seem to be at another point when society will make radical adjustments for good or ill. History offers mixed lessons. Okay, so there's realism. We can't count right away on all good things coming from this. The plague of Athens in 430 BC led to a protracted period of lawlessness and immorality. This is the most chilling. Citizens lost faith in Athenian democracy, which never regained its standing. The millions of deaths caused by the 1918 Spanish flu and the First World War brought on women's suffrage, but also inaugurated the Roaring Twenties, which featured disparities of wealth unequaled until the present day. Until the present day. A little more here from Pomata, the Italian scholar. He writes, She was shocked by the direction that the pandemic was taking in the United States. She understood the reasons for the mass protests and political rallies. This must have been after the George Floyd murder. But as a medical historian, she was uncomfortably uncomfortably reminded of the religious processions that had spread the plague in medieval Europe. Uh, apparently, in, 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 in that century, the 14th century, um, the Pope at the time authorized what he called penitent processions, uh, some attended by as many as 2,000, which everywhere accompanied the plague and helped to spread it. That's a word of warning about participating in public demonstrations and parades, at least without a mask. And as someone who had obediently remained indoors for months, she was affronted by the refusal of so many Americans to wear masks at the grocery store and maintain social distancing. In an email, she condemned those who blithely ignored scientific advice, writing, What I see right now in the United States is that the pandemic has not led to new creative thinking, but on the contrary, has strengthened all the worst, most stereotypical and irrational ways of thinking. Irrational. Talk about irrational. What about this QAnon? This ridiculous, insane QAnon. She continues, I'm very sorry for the state of your country, which seems to be in the grip of a horrible attack of unreason. She continued, I'm sorry because I love it and have received so much from it. So, Whatever happened in pandemics past, plagues of other centuries, 
again, we're not stuck with some dreadful fate. Uh, it is it is our it is our engagement with this shifting world uh, that can make all the difference. Oh. Too many devices. Well, that's a sign that I have to wrap things up here and, and uh, get back to Doksan. Um, all right, until next time.